Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Right around this time, next week, if you happen by our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages, there's a good chance you'll see an unsettling image staring back at you. Yes, a week from today, the muse for our second flash fiction contest will emerge from the darkness to invade your nightmares. Then all you have to do is write down those nightmares, in a thousand words or less, and send them our way. It'll be cathartic, really. A great way to unleash that troublesome darkness swirling around in your head, out into the world, and onto your fellow listeners. Keep an eye out for it. Special thanks this week goes to our newest patron, Lindsay Moore. Thanks for your generous support, Lindsay. It helps us hold the eldritch terrors at bay uh, so staff can keep what's left of their limbs intact. If you'd like to help our plight, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify. We're creeping our way towards 75 supporters, and we'd love to count you as one of them. There are lots of perks in it for you, too. Check it out. One last thing I wanted to share with you this week before we hit the road is a series of classics that's being released by the Horror Writers Association. It's called the Haunted Library series, 
and it brings some familiar, as well as some lesser-known horror classics, out of the shadows and into the spotlight, with forwards and introductions by some modern masters of the genre, like Joe R. Lansdale and Ramsey Campbell. Titles included in the collection right now include Gaston LaRue's The Phantom of the Opera, The Beetle by Richard Marsh, Vathek by William Beckford, and one of my favorites, William Hope Hodgson's The House on the Borderland. Up for pre-order now are Of One Blood or The Hidden Self by Pauline Hopkins and The Parasite and Other Tales of Terror by Arthur Conan Doyle. It's a gorgeously designed collection worth a prominent spot on your bookshelf. You can pick up your copies over at bookshop.org. I've put a link to them in the show notes. We've got one more stop in the Yukon this week before we move on. As we've already talked about, the Klondike Gold Rush was kind of a big deal in those parts, and the sheer number of people who headed north in search of a gleaming piece of fortune certainly left an impact on the territory. An impact that didn't disappear when the gold dried up and the men left, either. Really, only a fraction of those arriving in the Yukon really knew anything about what to do once they got there. And many who made it there, especially those who had traveled from far away, weren't truly prepared for the unforgiving nature of the Canadian North. For Fred Nelson and his partner Swanson, they'd arrived at the worst of times. Just as the harsh, chilling winds and blowing snows of winter began to settle over the mountains. After arriving in the Yukon and winding up in Dawson City, they struck out northwest toward the border with Alaska to a little settlement at the mouth of the Forty Mile River. It was rugged, unforgiving territory at the best of times, but with the icy breath of winter whispering through the woods, travel was downright miserable but they'd heard tales of others striking deep veins of precious ore further up the Forty Mile River. And with many of the more seasoned prospectors holed up to wait out the worst of the cold, the pair decided it was prime time for them to seize their piece of the prize. They'd left the settlement earlier in the day to follow the Forty Mile River toward its head. It had been cold, but nothing they hadn't experienced since arriving in the north. Then the temperature began to drop. Fast. The forest was suddenly deathly silent, and the light filtering through the trees began to brighten, became whiter and whiter, closer and closer, as the ice fog rolled in. The world closed in rapidly around them as the mist advanced, swallowing the trees one at a time, until only a tight ring of tall, slender shadows loomed out at them through a dense wall of white. There was no pushing through this. They had to turn back. But in the denseness of the fog, the going was slow, and the severe cold had already begun to take its toll, making their feet and hands ache, their limbs stiffen. They trudged through the forest, the mist creating a sea of sameness that made it impossible to tell if they'd moved miles or only feet. Their only point of reference 
only lifeline, became the frozen river off to their right. For a moment, the fog began to lift, and it seemed as though they might be okay. Then the wind picked up, and the storm began in earnest. Huge icy flakes whipped through the trees, stinging their faces, and they were forced to keep their heads down, chins tucked to their chests, furs pulled tight around their heads. By this point, the sky had begun to darken toward twilight, too. So it was sheer luck when they spotted it. To their left, through a break in the trees, loomed a large, solid shadow. It looked to be a building of some kind, a cabin. They turned and trudged toward it, away from the riverbank. Through the endless blowing ice and snow, the shape gradually took on detail as they neared. It was a cabin, a log structure, and judging by the state, it looked like it had been there for a while. Dumb luck that they happened upon it, but while neither of the men admitted it out loud, they both thought it. This may just be the thing that saves our lives. Walking around to the front, the two pounded on the door with aching fists, voices battling to be heard above the icy whistle of the wind. But there was no answer. No light spilled from the windows or between the cracks in the door. Swanson reached frost-stiffened fingers toward the door handle and was about to shove it open when Nelson grabbed his arm and held it fast. From beneath his icy brows, Nelson's eyes looked panicked. Wait, what if, what if this is LaSalle's cabin? He stuttered. Despite the life-threatening cold, his apprehension was palpable. Swanson swallowed hard. I don't see as we have a choice, he said flatly, and wrenched his arm free of Nelson's grasp. With a heavy click of the handle, he shouldered the door open. Swanson was right, of course. Stealing himself against the knot of dread building in his chest, Nelson quickly followed him inside, wrestling the wind to shut the door behind him. The men dropped their packs to the floor, clouds of steam billowing from each of their lips as they let out held breath. The cabin was worn and dusty, but mostly empty. A few remnants of wood furniture were scattered about the cabin's two rooms. Careful to disturb as little as they could, they collected what broken scraps they could salvage and lit a small fire inside the hearth. It wasn't much warmer in the cabin than it had been outside but at least there was some respite from the howling wind and blowing snow. Even with the fire casting its meager glow into the room, though, there was an underlying chill that permeated deeper than the weather outside. The cabin's second room was especially uncomfortable. They swung the door closed to preserve what heat they had and settled down in front of the hearth. Even though they never spoke of it, both men knew in their hearts, could feel in their bones. This was definitely LaSalle's cabin. Even for relative newcomers to the area, 
The name LaSalle sent a chill down the spine of any who uttered it. The old man had built a reputation over the years, and not a particularly nice one either. He'd been known as rude and cruel, with a downright vicious temper. But he was a regular fixture in the 40-mile community nonetheless. So when people began noticing he hadn't been seen in a while, a small party was sent into the bush to check on him. What they found when they arrived at the cabin wasn't at all what they'd expected. His cabin was intact, and everything seemed in order at first. But upon forcing the door open, it unveiled a grisly sight. LaSalle's corpse lay on the cabin floor, brutally carved into gory ribbons. He had been murdered, there was no question. The wounds were too clean and crisp, and the corpse too intact for it to have been a wild animal. Through heaving stomachs, the men managed to dig a shallow grave near the cabin where they buried LaSalle's remains. The home had a disturbing feel about it, a decidedly dark aura, and the men hurried out of there as soon as the deed was done. No one ever bothered to return to the cabin either, whether to investigate, fix up, or demolish it. So it sat alone in the woods, brooding in the dark deed that had taken place there. Despite the thick air of uneasiness that swirled around the empty cabin, Nelson and Swanson curled close to the little fire, nestled under their furs, tucked their packs under their heads, and prepared to settle in for the night. Exhaustion eventually won out, and the men fell into fitful sleep. Nelson was awakened several hours later by the sound of a shrill howl. The wind must have found a gap in the deteriorating cabin and begun screaming through the crack. But that wasn't quite right, and Nelson knew it. The sound was too clear, too close. The little bit of warmth that had worked its way into his veins drained away in an instant as he realized the sound wasn't coming from outside the cabin, but from inside, in the second room. Nelson moved to wake Swanson, but discovered the other man was wide awake already and motionless under his pile of furs. Judging by the drawn look on his face, Swanson had come to the same realization. The two rose from their places hesitantly. The fire had died to mere glowing embers, and there was very little light in the cabin to see by. They approached the door to the second room, and slowly Swanson reached out to pull it open. But while it had swung freely enough only hours earlier, it now refused to budge. The sound from the other side continued to grow in volume and timber taking on a clear, human quality. Wails and moans of pain, and beneath it all, a man's subtle, strangled cry for help. Swanson renewed pulling on the door, while Nelson threw on his gear and ran outside to see if he could peer through the window into the room. He pressed his face against the glass, cupped his hands to his eyes. Inside the room was a strange, eerie glow, and at its center 
a transparent mist that swirled and eddied in the shape of a man covered in dark lines. Nelson ran back around and into the cabin. Inside, the noise had become deafening. Nelson once again tried to help Swanson with the door, but no amount of pushing, pulling, or kicking would even flex the wood. Finally, Swanson called out the thing that was on both of their minds. LaSalle, is that you? Silence crashed over the cabin like a breaking wave. Swanson tried again. LaSalle, is that you? The pair jumped as a loud bang resounded from the door, as if a large, meaty fist had hammered against the wood. Encouraged by the response, Swanson assured the spirit they meant no harm or disrespect, then began to ask questions. Each was answered with a knock on the wall. Until, that is, Swanson's curiosity got the better of him. LaSalle, he began cautiously. Who, who murdered you? A heartbeat passed. Then the door to the second room crashed violently open, and standing in the doorway was the apparition himself, a furious visage drenched in blood and gore, its face and body sliced wide in dozens of places, features contorted with wounds and rage. It roared at the two men, who, without a glance, grabbed their packs and ran as fast as they could out the door and into the fresh, deep snow. The two did eventually make it back to the settlement, but were fairly tight-lipped about their ordeal at first. That is, until Nelson happened to describe the terrifying events to a reporter from the Klondike Nugget newspaper. After hearing this story, the reporter, perhaps unsurprisingly, felt no inclination to go in search of the cabin. In fact, Nelson's story in itself had provided him all the evidence he needed. No one, the reporter later commented, could ever have pretended to be that scared. We have one story for you this evening, which comes to us from Christopher Hawkins. Christopher Hawkins is a multi-published author, with short stories appearing in over a dozen magazines and anthologies. He is a former editor of the One Buck Horror Anthology series, as well as an avid gamer and collector of curiosities. When he's not writing, he spends his time exploring old cemeteries, lurking in museums, and searching for a decent cup of tea. For free stories and news about upcoming projects, visit his website, christopher-hawkins.com, or follow him on Twitter, at Chris Hawkins. Children of the Night Join me for Christopher Hawkins' Storms of the Present, a Tales to Terrify original. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I watch the delivery man through the gap in the curtains. The sun is bright and it makes me squint. As he bends down to leave the little box by the door, I see the muscles of his calves flex. It occurs to me that it must be from all the walking he does. And it occurs to me that I could go walking too. If I did it enough, I might be able to see my calves flex too. For an instant, I picture myself following him down the driveway to the sidewalk and along it to the place where it ends at the cross street, where that new and unfamiliar road disappears behind a row of other people's houses. I shudder to think of myself there, looking back at the little house that has been my only home, fearing that I might lose my way back. I relax a little when I see that the man is gone, but I still wait as long as I'm able before I crack open the door to scoop the package inside. The box took three days to get here, two more than it had said on the website. This point had been very important to me up until this moment, but now that I have my hands on the thing, it seemed barely worth remembering. I test the weight of it as I wind my way to the kitchen, stepping carefully around leaning towers of newspapers, past stacks of half-empty boxes. It's no bigger than a pencil case, and I know its contents are right because I can feel them rattling around inside. I find a knife in the sink that's not too wet and I use it to saw through the packing tape. The smaller box inside is blue and white, just like the picture on the website, and it fits exactly in the place I had left for it, near the scale and stack of carefully folded paper towels. I steel myself and resolve to wait until morning before I go any further. After all, what was one more day compared to the days of waiting and the days of planning before that? One day wouldn't change my mind, but it would cool my nerves. It wouldn't do for my hands to shake or for my heart to be pumping so hard that the blood came too fast to stop. No, 
I could wait a day. I would sleep and come back at first light when the sun was at the back of the house and his rays through the kitchen window would serve to illuminate my work. Then I see myself in the full-length mirror that leans dusty against the wall. I see the roundness in my cheeks, my eyes set deep above them. Beneath the hem of my t-shirt, once black, now stained and faded to gray, a wide band of pale flesh falls heavy over my sweatpants. I touch the spot, and it yields beneath my fingers. It must be now, I think, before I lose my nerve. I'll do it now or risk never doing it at all. I'd rehearsed it in my head a hundred times or more. The moves I could make from memory. I filled the wide bowl with the flowers on the rim and let the tap run a bit first to make sure it didn't come out too cold. I place it on the table next to the small blue bowl, empty now, but not for long. No, not for long. The rest had already been laid out through careful practice. The tongs from the drawer of kitchen tools, an unused sponge I had found hidden beneath the sink, spools of black thread from Mama's sewing bag. I sit in my chair and make sure I can reach them all. I needn't have bothered, but still, I make the moves one last time, my hand lingering on the blue and white box that I only now feel ready to open. I draw out one of the long bundles inside and free it from its plastic wrapper. Its edges glint and glitter in the dusty beam of light from the window. I want to test it, but I know it's sharp. So sharp, as sharp as I will ever need. Surgical steel delivered to my doorstep, each scalpel pre-sterilized and individually wrapped, every one a tiny miracle. Now that I had one in my hand, I wondered how it had ever taken me so long to begin. I frowned at the stack of folded paper napkins. I'd wanted cloth but couldn't bear to sully Mama's tea towels. I wonder, not for the first time, whether I'll have enough. Whether once I start cutting, there will be too much to keep up with and the plastic trash bag I've draped over the back of the chair will get too full. I'd been through it over and over again in my head. Accounted for every last possibility, every way in which this could go wrong. What if there was something I failed to consider? What if, once I started, something went wrong that I could not fix? I shake my head. I'd come too far to let myself become derailed by doubt. I strip off my t-shirt and wiggle my sweatpants down to the floor. I watch my stomach in the dusty mirror and follow how it gives and rolls beneath my fingers. Baby fat was what Mama had always called it, and I'd try to twist away as she giggled and pinched hard enough to leave marks. Subcutaneous was what it was, and that one word made all the difference. If it had been the kind that wound its way beneath the muscle, around the liver and intestines, then there'd be nothing be done for it. This fat was just below the skin, so close that I can imagine the feel of it against my bare fingers. Subcutaneous fat would be easy, so easy that it still amazes me that I took so long to realize what I could do about it. Not that I hadn't tried all the other ways first. I'd done my jumping jacks in front of the room where the papers weren't so high. Mama watching doubtfully from her chair in the corner as I huffed and puffed my way through push-ups and crunches. 
I don't know what you're bothering for, Mama would say, her chair creaking as it rocked. Ain't gonna make a bit of difference, except to make the whole house smell like a locker room. She was right, of course. In my heart, I knew as much before I even started, and lest I forget, she was always there, always, to remind me with her proddings and her biting scorn. I had no say in the food that came into our house. I began eating less, but new snacks and bright-colored packages would find themselves arrayed near my place at the table. When I resisted, she took to eating them in front of me, sighing with pleasure at every bite until I could do nothing else but give in. I'd try to skip meals, but the meals would always be waiting for me. Don't waste what the Lord has given, Mama would say, as if the Lord worked in a factory packing microwave dinners in flat little boxes. But this new plan, I can feel the certainty of it working with every anticipating beat of my heart. Best of all, Mama won't be here to get in my way. I spread on the numbing cream and almost forgot to use the gloves. I'd done that once before when I was helping Mama with her sores, and it had left the tips of my fingers feeling like blunted, alien things. I forced myself to slow down. I worked the cream in deep, feeling its cold on my skin and then feeling nothing at all. The place where I'll cut is small, just to the right of my belly button, but I use more than I'll need anyway. It will be a small job, a pound, not more than two. There's no pain and just a little blood. The scalpel draws itself through my skin like a shark's fin cutting through the waves, and in an instant my body has a new opening. Three inches long, I can barely see it, but for the little beads of red that well up along its length like tiny rubies. Despite my efforts, the cut is not completely straight. It curves away toward the waistband of my underwear. I can almost imagine that it's smiling at me. I pinch at its edges, forcing it open like a coin purse. The blood comes quicker now, and I reach for a paper towel to wipe it away. At last, I can see my prize, a field of glistening yellow-gray just beyond the wound. I probe it with my finger, and it yields beneath my touch like molded gelatin. Now that I'm so close, it seems like such a simple thing to rid myself of it. To reach in with my fingers and pull it out of me in great heaping handfuls. But I began with a plan and I will follow that plan. It would not do to be careless, not with my goal so close enough that I can literally touch it. Again I take up the scalpel and again I cut, deeper this time. I could feel the bite of the blade as it moves, but not enough to make me stop. The flow of blood has slowed to a trickle. I work slowly, describing a little circle no bigger than my thumbnail, waiting for a sharper pain, a more dangerous pain, to tell me I've gone too far. But the pain never comes, and after a moment, the little circle tugs free. I hold it between thumb and blade and bring it into the light. It's yellow and streaked with blood, and it wobbles as it moves. At once I'm struck by how strange it is, this part of myself, once hidden, now brought into the light. It glistens like some parasitic grub, rendered harmless in the work of moments. I drop it into the little bowl. The needle on the scale twitches but does not move. 
one pound, perhaps two, and there is so much work left to do. I swish the scalpel clean in the bowl of water. I work faster now, gaining confidence by the moment. The scalpel guides my hand as it describes a far larger circle than last. Again, I pull forth the jiggling mass and deposit it in the bowl upon the scale. The needle moves again, but it stays this time. I hear Mama's mocking voice, but it is distant and faint, and I know that it is not real. Blood trickles from the wound in a steady stream, but I pay it no mind as I apply the blade again. It moves like a skater on ice, and I remind myself to slow down, lest I cut too deep and nick something vital. But I have cut down to the full depth of the blade, and still I have only begun. The blade glides, and then the blade stops. I try to draw it along, but it will not move. It is as if it has become caught against something hard and unyielding, and my mind begins to panic as it races to understand what it might be. I am not cut so deep as to be near muscle or bone. Could it be that I missed something in my preparations? Some vital vessel or length of connective tissue? I have no time to attempt an answer. The blade twitches and jerks in my hand and sinks deep into the yellow-gray fat. It is only when the handle is half-submerged in the spongy mass that I am able to grasp it enough to make it stop. I pull, but it will not come. Something has taken hold of the scalpel. I can feel it countering my efforts as I try to pull the blade free. The handle slips against my bloody fingers and I hold onto it with both hands to keep it from sinking away entirely. Whatever it is that fights me seems to match me strength for strength, and it takes everything I have just to keep my grip. The scalpel sinks deeper, and I fear that I have lost until at once something gives way with a snap. I sit in the chair, the scalpel in my fist. The sound of my racing heart pounds in my ears beating in time to the lazy pulse of the blood that wells up from the hole in my body where I pulled the thing free. It beads against the edge of the cut in my skin and rolls down the great curve of my belly. My eyes go wide as I see the scalpel streaked in red and my throat begins to tighten. The blade is broken, a new blunt edge in the place of sharpened steel. The tip is missing. I try to sleep, but sleep won't come. There's a fly in the room and it has trapped itself between the window and the curtain. I lie in the empty bed and stare at the ceiling, listening to the sound it makes as it throws itself against the glass. Buzz, click. Buzz, click. Buzz, click. The cut in my stomach is sore and its edges sting when I touch them. I want to use more of the numbing cream, but it burns in the raw opening when I try to put it on. The thread from Mama's sewing needle is strong, and the stitches are holding despite the shaking hand that made them. They pull at my skin as I shift my weight. My stomach growls, but I will not eat. I stare at the ceiling and try not to think of the broken tip of the scalpel. It's small, no bigger than the nail of my little finger, but it is sharp and it is still inside me. In those moments, when the fly stops buzzing, I can feel it working beneath the wound, 
gliding by millimeters through the same slick and yielding tissue that I'd touched with my own hands just hours before. It will have to come out. I am tired and my thoughts are addled by hunger and pain, but I know this much above all else. And yet, the thought of taking up another scalpel from the little blue and white box sends a cold tingle of dread down my spine. It isn't fear of the cutting. No, it is the memory of the blade being tugged from my hand by something strong enough to break sharp and steel. The fly strikes the window and I feel the thing inside me turn, dragging the little shard with it. How long has it been there, lurking beneath the surface of my skin? It is some kind of parasite, like the worms in third world countries that burrow so deep that they have to be pried out with a stick. Was it lurking in something I ate, some spoiled bit of meat or vegetables from a dented can? Or has it always been a part of me, lying in wait, biding its time until the right moment to assert itself, a moment I provided when I touched the scalpel to my skin? There's a sag in the mattress in the spot where Mama used to sleep, where the slats beneath it are cracked and bowed. I find myself sliding toward it. My stomach churns. I know that I should get up. I know I should walk past the cellar door into the kitchen and find myself some food. I fight to keep my place and remember Mama. The way she would watch me when I passed the boxes of cakes she'd left out on the table, her eyes almost daring me. The thing inside me writhes at the thought. To feed myself means feeding it as well. And that I will not do. I wake to the light of midday and the chill of sweat drying against my skin. The fly has stopped buzzing, though whether it has finally died or just moved on, I do not know. I am slow to move, my sense is groggy. What little sleep I found was fitful and plagued by dark dreams. I find the stitches with my fingertips, if only to assure myself that it was real, that I had not dreamed at all. My jaw tightens as I touch them. The wound aches and the skin around it is warm. With effort, I pry myself from the bed to make my way to the bathroom. The vast curve of my stomach aches as if someone has spent the night using it as a punching bag. But it is still. The thing inside me is at rest. Perhaps, like the fly, it too has died. Perhaps, if I'm patient, I can find where it has hidden the bit of scalpel blade and at last remove it, along with the corpse of whatever it was that stole it from me, be it worm or larva or something I have not yet imagined. It is a calming thought, but even as it occurs to me, it doesn't seem credible. The thing is still inside me. I can sense it there, waiting. If I have any doubt of that, it is gone the instant I turn on the bathroom light. I see myself reflected in the dirty mirror, a sticky smear of blood drying into my underwear. The great, pale curve of my belly sags over the waistband. There, beneath the cavern of my navel, lies a series of sharp slashes, narrow bruises, purple-edged with red. Together they form a single word unmistakable even backward in the spattered glass. Feed.
I stagger back against the doorframe. Knees that were never strong threaten to buckle and send me crashing to the floor. I do not let them. The thing that wrote the word is still inside me and I will not show it weakness. I feel it turn within me, a lazy flip as if to punctuate the word. To let me know that it is there, waiting. But I will not, must not, obey. To feed it, I must feed myself, and this I cannot do. The thought barely has time to solidify in my mind before I feel the thing move again. There's no leisurely turn this time, as it drives with force and intention deep into the center of my stomach. At its head, the broken bit of scalpel blazes a path of white-hot pain, tearing through the yielding flesh as it bores deeper and deeper. The pain doubles me over, and though I cannot bring myself to speak, my mind screams over and over that I will concede, that I will do whatever it asks, if only it will stop and give me a moment to breathe. But it does not relent, and I feel the sharpened steel edging closer to muscle and bone. I stagger into the hall, groping wildly, pulling myself along the walls. My hand finds the knob on the cellar door. It turns beneath my fingers, but I will not allow it to open, not even now. The metal shard drives once more, then slows as if it has met some new resistance. I feel its point against muscle above my hip, turning my movements against me. Every step is a fiery, breathless stab. At last, I reach the pantry door. As I swing it aside, the pain retreats. Sweat cools on my forehead and in the shallow folds of my skin. I scan the rows of soups of canned corn and green beans, but I know they will not do. As if in confirmation, the little shard cuts again, not inward this time, but upward. It is a gentle, almost friendly prod. And I raise my eyes along with its motion. There, on the top shelf, are the boxes that Mama would stack on the table to taunt me. Yellow cakes with white frosting, little rolls of chocolate wrapped in plastic, heavy sugar robed in foil. I think of the delivery man, of the muscles in his calf, hard and lean beneath his skin. I think of walking to the corner in the sunlight, and I begin to cry. Please, I beg, not knowing what it is I'm pleading with. I don't want it. Please just leave me alone. I hold my breath, and all is quiet for an instant. Then the metal turns inside me, and I know I've been given my answer. The blade retreats again, and I reach up and take one of the boxes from the shelf. It is already open, and as I pull out one of the plastic-wrapped bundles, it crinkles pleasantly between my fingers. The thing inside me is quiet now, anticipating the wrapping part so easily, and as the smell of its contents hits me, I begin to salivate in spite of myself. With tears on my lips, I bring it to my mouth and take a bite. It is good. It is so very good. I watch the deliver man through the gap in the curtains. The box he carries is large enough that he needs both hands to hold it, but he maneuvers it with ease. I can see the muscles of his arms flex as he places it on the porch. I want to wait until nightfall before I open the door to bring it inside, but I know the thing inside me will not let me. I watch the man walk back down the driveway and climb into his truck. It allows me that much at least. 
Then the awful prodding begins, and I know that I can keep it waiting no longer. I move so much slower now. It takes me full minutes to negotiate the narrow path to the door. My legs are swollen and my knees hurt. My arms are heavy. There are stretch marks on my stomach like growth rings on a tree trunk. I brush against the stacks of magazines of overstuffed plastic grocery bags as I pass. I hear them fall behind me, but I do not stop to pick them up. I hurry to wrestle the box inside, rocking it on its corners, dragging it toward the door. It is heavier than the delivery man's movement had led me to believe, and I look around to make sure there's no one to witness my struggle. The sunlight reflects off my pale cheeks and hurts my eyes. With one last kick, I heave it inside. I am out of breath, and as I close the door behind me, I lean against it for support. My keeper flips and I am moving again, dragging the box to the kitchen. The pantry is nearly empty now. I have eaten everything inside it, from the cakes and their little wrappers to the sauces in their glass jars. There is more in the cellar. I recall rows of peaches and pears in rusting cans, but I will not go down there. Not even at the prodding of the metal shard. My keeper knows this, I think, and it does not ask it of me. A stack of empty cans clatters to the floor as I pry open the box. A cloud of flies buzzes into the air. I bat them away as I sort the box's contents and stack them on the table. I push the scale and bowls aside. The water is long since dried and the little lump of flesh that I pried for myself is mummified and maggoty. I tear open a bag of chips. I've never liked them. They're too salty and they give me headaches, but I eat them anyway. My keeper prefers them and makes its inclinations known by the words it raises in my skin. Salt. Sugar. More. The broken blade has traveled beyond my stomach, gliding through fatty pathways into my chest, my thighs, making my whole body its canvas. The spellings are often wrong, and the letters are sometimes backwards, but they are enough, and I obey. That earliest word is faded now, barely readable against a field of purple and yellow. My cut strains at its stitches, the skin around it red and angry. I wipe the grease from my hand on my sweatpants and try not to touch it. It is hot and it aches beneath my fingers. I pull more chips from the bag and crunch them slowly. Beneath my skin, the blade is busy. It moves in lazy circles, but it moves with a purpose. I swallow hard. The salt burns my throat, even as hot tears burn my cheeks. I think, and not for the first time, of stuffing my mouth, of using my fingers to push the half-chewed mass down my windpipe. My keeper pauses in its labors, as if daring me. I only thrust my hand back into the bag. The work inside me begins again. I close my eyes, and when I do, I can almost see Mama smirking back at me. Days flow past. I can no longer tell where one ends and another begins. Has it been weeks? A month? All time is measured in the space between feedings, when I only stop because my stomach has stretched near to breaking. My body has become a factory. Materials go in, waste comes out. The product grows beneath my skin. New layers of yellow-gray flesh, pliable and ever-expanding. I wonder, sometimes, at what 
It almost looked like. But I will never know. I have broken every mirror in the house. I have given up all hope of sleep. The broken blade is at work all night now, always moving, always cutting. It makes its way across my chest and into my arms, through my groin and around my thighs. I lie awake and watch as its movements make ripples in my new flesh and raise new bruises on my skin. Sometimes when it cuts, I can feel something inside me snap, like the breaking of a guitar string. It cuts and cuts and does not stop, not even when I scream. More than once, I have thought to make an end of it. I have taken a fresh scalpel from its wrapper and laid it against the pulsing artery at the side of my neck. I pressed the point into my skin, but I could not drive it home. My arm belonged to my keeper now, and it would not move until I let the knife fall from my fingers. At least, that is how I remember it. My thoughts are jumbled and plagued by fear. I am no longer certain of what is real. The flies in the house are thick now. They light on my wound as I lay sweating in the night. I bat them away, but they always return, drawn by the smell and steady dribble of gray-green that oozes from the cut. It hurts too much to touch now, so I do my best not to. It hurts too much to move at all, so I only move when I have to, when it is required of me. It is required of me now. My keeper urges me to stand, so we stand. I am dizzy and I stumble, but I allow myself a little smile because I know that at least I have nothing more to give. The pantry is bare. We stagger to it and throw the door aside, touching the shelves one by one, but they are all empty. The delivery man will not come when there is no money left to pay the bills. I cannot feed my keeper when there is no food left to eat. This, then, will be my triumph. I could not cut it out, but now, at last, I will starve it out. I will lay in my bed as my hunger consumes me. The organs of my body will consume the very layers of flesh my keeper has compelled me to build. I will waste away, and as I do, my keeper too will waste. Deny the very fuel it requires to keep the blade moving inside me. Denied the outcome of whatever strange purpose it has set itself to. From the corner of my eye, I glance at the scalpel lying on the kitchen floor. I think to carry it with me, to keep it in my hand until the time, maybe days from now, maybe weeks, when my keeper is no longer strong enough to stop me. When it can no longer fight, I will press the blade to my throat and end us both. A final act of defiance, a final assertion of myself. I try to take the scalpel, but it will not let me. I try to return to the bed, but my keeper has other plans. We turn toward the hallway. A strangled cry of panic rises from my mouth, for I know exactly where it means to go. Somehow it has read my secret thoughts, and it knows about the jars and the cans stacked away in the cellar. I fight every step, but I fight in vain. It is too strong, and if it has its way, it will grow stronger still. We pause before the cellar door. I feel my creeper retreat, inviting me, daring me to do the next part on my own. I place my hand upon the knob. I haven't touched it in months, not since Mama died. Even now, I can feel her mocking me, waiting for me to act, knowing that I am powerless not to.
I turn the knob and push the door aside. It gives way with a faint creak, and a cloud of flies rises up to meet me. I pull the chain to turn on the light, but see nothing because my eyes are closed. My keeper gives an encouraging flutter, and I breathe deep in spite of the smell. Mama is there at the base of the stairs. She lies on the concrete amid the shards of the wooden handrail, and she's wearing a floral pattern dress that I remember from as far back as my childhood. She's wasted away inside it, and it covers what is left of her like a shroud. Her cheeks are sunken, and the flies have taken her eyes, but she still looks up at me, her head cocked sideways on her broken neck, accusing. A trail of blood, dried and sticky, leads away to the drain in the floor. She is blocking the way, and we will have to step over her when we get to the bottom. I do not want to get that close to her. My keeper has retreated. Is it in sympathy? Has it sensed that this new thing it asks of me is too much, and it is giving me the space to do it alone? I look down into the darkness, knowing that I would soon fling myself down the narrow stairs as lumber my way to the bottom. It would be so easy, the slightest of movements, slighter still than the push at Mama's back that sent her pinwheeling down there a lifetime ago. My keeper senses the thought and coils against it, and yet I can move, and my movements are still my own. I place an eager foot on the stair. My great weight tilts forward and the wood beneath me creaks in protest. My keeper writhes and slithers like an eel and I can sense its fear, for we both know that what I have just set in motion cannot be stopped. Gravity takes me and for an instant I feel myself floating in air as if weightless. My keeper gives a self-satisfied flip, and I realize that it is not fear that I sense, but anticipation. It is too late to stop myself. My feet drag, and I tumble down and down. My arm snaps. I hear it, but I do not feel it. My body quakes around me as I cartwheel upside down and right side up, and on and on until at last I crash to a stop. I cannot move. My keeper is still, and the last thing I am aware of before the world goes dark is that I have fallen next to Mama, and her hand is in my own. Try as I might, I cannot hold it. The cellar door is hard and cold, pitted concrete and dust of ages. Inch by inch I gather myself, pulling, finding new energy with every labored move. My spine is broken, but I no longer feel it. The indignity and the pain of these past weeks has faded to nothing. I reach for the memory, but it bursts and scatters like a cloud of flies. My stitches have split. The cut is so much longer now. It stretches from my chest and curves back down past my groin and into my thigh. The skin hangs loose and wide, like the cover of an old book. The void beyond it is deep and red. My eyes are open, and they are turned up toward the light. I look back at them, and I see them, but I do not know how. The tip of the broken scalpel clatters to the floor. The last cuts have been made, and like all good tools, I can lay it aside, satisfied that its work is done. Like the moth, I have emerged from my chrysalis, born anew and ready to fly. I stare at the limp and flabby thing as I lurch away. It seems small, too small to ever have contained me. 
I see the dried and eyeless thing in the floral dress, and I wonder how it ever had any power over me. I am almost to the floor drain now. The distant, older part of my mind tells me that all I need to do is follow it, and it will take me away from this place. I reach out beyond the opening, tendrils thin and probing, and I know that it is true. I seat past the grating, and as I do, a thought buzzes across my consciousness. The memory of a muscled calf, of a man standing in the sunlight. I find water, and as I begin to float along its gentle current, I push the thought away. I no longer need the sunlight, and as the pipes guide me beyond the street corner and on beneath the next and the next, I feel something stir within me. It is a hunger, and I follow where it leads me, ready at last to feed. That was Christopher Hawkins' Storms of the Present, as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, including the popular Glenn and Tyler series. Horror fans will want to check out his narration of Ancient Enemies by Brian McKinley, a vampire political thriller. You can visit Brian at his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com, or on Twitter at Voices of Brian. Thank you, Brian. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters over on Patreon and PayPal. If you're not a supporter already, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shoutouts and merch packs. Every dollar helps, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our twisted faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales. You can also share your love of the show by wearing some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will shoot you over to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we unleash the darkness inside, 
with more Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.